0: So last week, you may remember, we looked at, we divided chapter 14 into thirds. We looked at the first third and the the final third. Today, we look at the middle third. Uh, It's a really fascinating story. But before that story, this story. There once was an elderly couple who lived on the edge of a very wealthy city. The elderly couple, however, was very far from wealthy. They had married young and had been quite happy to live the duration of their long lives in the tiny cottage that they still lived in, on the side of a tiny hill, tending the tiny garden and minding the tiny livestock, which had supplied all of their needs for decades, they rarely received visitors to their tiny cottage. Which was just as well; they were quite separate from the selfish greed and vicious ambition of the townsfolk below. Below them, this separation suited them just fine. They had few friends, but they had no enemies, and they were quite content with the company of their cottage guardian, a fat old goose named Penelope. All of this changed one day, however, and the change came with the arrival of two weary travellers. It was Penelope's incessant honking which warned them, of course. When the knock came, the old couple shared an apprehensive look. One of the old man's bushy eyebrows arched as if to say, Are you sure? To which the old woman's hefty shoulder shrugs suggested it would be terrible of us to deny hospitality. And so the door was swung open cheerfully. What greeted them was a strange sight, The men in the doorway were dressed in torn clothing, with ragged sandals covering dust-caked feet. Neither man carried even a small sack of possessions, suggesting the poverty of the travellers outweighed even the poverty of the elderly couple themselves. The men each bore with them, however, a single unique possession. The taller, broader, dark-haired pilgrim carried only a cracked, lightning-bolt-shaped walking staff, while the shorter, slighter, light-haired pilgrim wore an eccentric cloth hat with golden wings sticking out on either side. It was this shorter man with the hat who served as the mouthpiece for the unusual travelling duo. It was he who greeted them and politely asked for meal and lodging, and it was he who gave the report of what had led them to the cottage of the elderly couple. As the old man gathered what few sticks he had to scratch together a fire, and the old woman eagerly prepared the last of their cabbage salad, milk, and strips of bacon for a meal, the man in the wing-tipped hat unfolded their story. He told them they had been on the road for weeks with not even a coin to their name. They had visited every one of the homes in the town down the hill over the past fortnight and every single knock on the door was met with shouts of disgust and angry threats of violence. Not one family would open the doors to these weary travellers. Their hunger, exhaustion and sadness at the repeated rejection was matched only by their bafflement at a city filled with such gorgeous gated marble homes that were totally empty of hospitality. The couple listened with shame at the depth of evil in the town below. The four new friends, however, ate their meals slowly, relishing each other's company. When the first course was finished, the old woman brought out apples and grapes. The man in the wing-tipped hat told fantastic stories as the elderly couple sat on their frayed wicker benches, completely engrossed in tales of comedy and tragedy, losing track of both time and wine. The broad-shouldered pilgrim, sat munching on almonds and stroking the head of Penelope the Goose, punctuating each story with a booming, deep-chested laughter that shook the tiny cottage to its frame. After each story, the old man would tip the wine pitcher into the glasses of their guests and ask for another tale, and each time, the man in the wing-tipped hat would gladly oblige. This went on well into the evening. Story after story was met with glass after glass of the couple's final store of red wine. It was quite late into the night, therefore, when the old woman noticed something unusual about the wine pitcher. She excused herself to go pick a few figs and asked her husband to lend her a hand. Once they were together behind the cottage with the old man still wiping tears of laughter from his eyes, the old woman asked with shocking urgency, "'Have you been filling up the wine pitcher?' Still trembling with giggles, the man asked what she was talking about. She grabbed him by the shoulders, and all giggling stopped." as she asked again with a hint of desperation, My love, I beg you, have you been filling up the wine pitcher? No, he replied, I thought you had been. I was so engrossed in the stories. Are are you telling me you haven't been filling the pitcher either? When she only shook her head solemnly, the old man finally grasped the severity of the situation. Eyes wide with fear, the couple ran back into the cottage and found the travelers with crooked, knowing smiles on their faces. The old man and old woman both dropped to their knees with their hands raised in a manner of seeking divine mercy. They had been entertaining the gods without even knowing it. They begged forgiveness for the pathetic paltry meal. They begged forgiveness for the pathetic paltry cottage. They began chasing after Penelope the goose, their beloved pet, who was the closest thing they had to a worthy offering to the gods who had just arrived in their home. But Penelope led them on a grand old chase before finally landing in the lap of the broad-shouldered, dark-haired pilgrim. With Goose in hand, and standing up to his fullest height, with his lightning-bolt staff in hand, the old couple knew that they were in the company of Zeus himself. And with him, in the tell-tale winged hat, was his son, the spokesman of the gods, Hermes, the messenger deity. But Zeus and Hermes merely smiled warmly at the old couple and lifted them gently to their feet. "'No,' said Hermes kindly, "'you have no need to fear.' Despite your poverty, you were the only ones in this whole wicked town who offered us rest and respite. This town will feel the fullness of our wrath, but you will be safe. Your loving hospitality has deemed you worthy to be saved. But quick, we must flee up to the top of this hill before my father Zeus sends a flood to destroy this sinful city. And so the company of four, along with Penelope the Goose, fled as fast as their elderly feet could carry them. They turned around just in time to see their wicked neighbors destroyed in the floodwaters, which raised right up to the thatched roof of their humble cottage. But look, no longer was it a cottage, but a mighty golden temple to Zeus. And forevermore, for the rest of their lives, the elderly couple, Philemon and Bacchus, would have the honor of serving as priests of that temple, until their lives were spent and they were transformed into beautiful trees, still guarding the place of worship for the gods they had once welcomed into their tiny home. For many centuries, the people of Phrygia would tell the tale of kind, hospitable Philemon and Bacchus to their children, a reminder that sometimes the gods come for a visit. As the Christian writer to the Hebrews would write just two generations after this story was recorded by Ovid, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Hebrews 13.2. This morning, we're not learning about that story. I I wanted to tell you that story, but we're not talking about that story, not at all. This is a retelling of a Greek story written down by Ovid around the same time that an adolescent Jesus was missing in the temple and his mother was looking for him for three days. Around the same time Ovid was writing down Greek Greek lore, Greek mythology. Um, So we're not talking about that story at all. However... The story of Philemon and Bacchus, their, their hospitality to Zeus and Hermes, informs much of what is going to happen in our passage this morning from Acts 14. The Israelites weren't the only religious group at the time waiting for their gods to return to them with power and justice. The people of Phrygia, which by the way is the land where Paul and Barnabas find themselves in Acts 14, was waiting as well. They were awaiting the return of Zeus and Hermes, and this time they were going to be ready. This time They were going to welcome them properly. This legend, the legend of Philemon and Bacchus, had happened right in their own backyard. Philemon and Bacchus were as familiar to the children of their day as Mickey Mouse or Snow White or Goldilocks would be familiar to the children of our day. Just outside the city gates in Lystra, where Paul and Barnabas are in our passage today, was a beautiful marble temple to Zeus, the dark-haired, lightning-bolt-wielding pilgrim from our story. If you were from Lystra... Zeus and Hermes were always on your mind, as was the story of well-spoken divine figures disguised as weary travelers performing miracles of kindness for those who happily welcome the gods into their lives. That's the story of Philemon and Bacchus, but guess what? It's also the story of Paul and Barnabas. Now, the story that I just read, that that I wrote, and I paraphrased the legend, but I don't obviously believe any of that actually happened. But now, we're going to read a story that I wholeheartedly believe probably exactly as it's recorded here in Acts 14, 8 to 20. So let's read that story now. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form! Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. That always seemed backwards to me. Doesn't it seem like Paul in the book of Acts is more of the Zeus character? But it's because of their both their appearance and their demeanor. Uh, Barnabas was much more stately, and so he was Zeus. Paul was the speaker, so he was Hermes. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. We looked at those last two verses last week. They, they really fit in well with what we were talking about last week, but also fits in today. So... Knowing the story of Philemon and Bacchus, as you now do, can you see where this little misunderstanding would have come from? Do you see how the people of Leicester would have said, this must be Zeus and Hermes? What are they? They're well-spoken travelers who look impoverished, who are arriving with great message, great stories, performing miracles, showing acts of kindness. You could see how they would get a little confused. You better believe that the people of Leicester aren't going to behave like their Phrygian ancestors. This time, they're going to get it right. And you better believe they aren't going to miss their chance to be rewarded like the elderly heroes in their ancient myth. But the story sounds familiar to us, even if we had never heard of the names Philemon and Bacchus. Um, in Acts 3, Peter performs a very similar miracle to Paul's healing in Acts 14. Both stories feature a man born lame. And by the way, Luke really wants us to get this. He mentions it three different times in one verse, Uh, in verse 8. In Leicester, there was a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and who had never walked. Okay, we get it, Luke. Okay, we we understand. He can't walk. But both stories feature the same thing. A man born lame. Uh, Secondly, both apostles are said to look directly at the person they heal. There's some kind of understanding that this person has faith. Um, Both crippled men immediately jump to their feet and both crippled men, both objects of mercy, are said to have had the faith to be healed. And actually, the fact that he jumped up immediately to his feet shows just how tremendous his, his faith is. Because if some short, bald guy just told you to stand up and walk, and you would never done that before, and it was excruciating every time you tried, would you just spring to your feet? He didn't gingerly test the waters. He jumped up. He leapt. He He knew immediately, before he even tested the thing out, that his faith had healed him. That, that he had been healed. So that shows faith in and of itself. And finally, the fifth one, both of the preachers, Paul and Peter, are forced to deflect the praise off themselves and onto the God who truly deserves it. And it's this last point, this deflection of praise, that serves as the important lesson for those of us reading the story 2,000 years later. This, I, the story of Philemon and Bacchus teaches us to be hospitable. It's still a good fairy tale. But this story teaches us something much more significant. This story might remind us of another story from earlier in Acts, not just the story of Peter healing the beggar, but uh, it might remind us of another man in Acts who spoke beautifully and was therefore worshipped as a god. Do you remember that story? Who was it that spoke beautifully and was worshipped as a god back in chapter 12? It wasn't an apostle. It was a bad guy. Herod. Herod Agrippa. Um, In Acts 12, Herod Agrippa accepted the glory and praise of the people and was literally eaten alive by worms for his vanity, which is rough, but deserved. That was just two chapters ago. And here we have the stark contrast of Paul and Barnabas. Herod accepted the worship, accepted the glory, refused to give any of it to God, and was judged for it. Paul and Barnabas, however, are a contrast to that. Paul's miraculous healing of the crippled man sends shock waves throughout the city of Lystra. Everyone hears about it. Everyone begins speaking excitedly. They're hollering for their neighbors. They're shouting who knows what ecstatic words of praise. And Paul and Barnabas, to them, it was very curious. They didn't speak that language. They didn't know what was going on. If they knew, it, everybody in the area would have spoken Greek. That's how Paul was able to communicate this message of, of Jesus as Savior to them. They all spoke Greek, but in response. The people of Leicester speak in Laodicean. Paul and Barnabas don't speak that. If they did, they would probably have known what was going on. They would have probably heard the Laodicean versions of the names Zeus and Hermes. They would have put two and two together a little sooner, and they could have stopped this whole thing before it ever started. But that doesn't really happen. They had no way of knowing what was going on. They probably just hoped they were responding, that the people in their urgent chatter, they probably thought they were just responding with praise to the Holy Spirit who had been the one to actually perform this miracle. But they were sorely mistaken. That's not what was going on. At some point, somebody runs off to fetch the priests in the temple uh, of, to Zeus, which is just outside the city gates. The reason it's just outside the city gates is because Zeus was their city protector. It was what they believed. And so they ran outside to get the priests. The priests immediately ran to the the temple pastures and collected a couple of oxen and decorated them with with of branches and, and beautifully colored wreaths and and brought them with knife in hand, blasting on the ceremonial horn to the city gates where Paul and Barnabas are waiting. Paul and Barnabas or as everyone assumed Zeus and Hermes. And it wasn't until that moment with the priests of Zeus offering a ritual sacrifice in their honor and grovelling on the ground before them that Paul and Barnabas recognized what all the forest foreign language fuss was all about. That's when they put two and two together. And like Philemon and Bacchus, having the realization dawn on them uh, with fear and astonishment, the two apostles react with desperate urgency. They tear their clothes, which throughout scriptures is a, a traditional Jewish response to hearing blasphemy. They just rip their clothes apart and scream, no. And then Paul hops up on the nearest elevated platform, right, probably right at the city gates, probably looking at the temple to Zeus he, he climbs up there and he tries to defuse the situation and deflect the praise which they had neither wanted nor deserved. The mini-sermon that Paul gives here is actually the first sermon in Acts delivered to an exclusively pagan audience. You can tell it's totally different from any, any other sermon preached by uh, Peter or Paul or uh, Stephen or Philip. This sermon is totally different from all those other ones. Um because it's preached to people who have absolutely no understanding of the Jewish background. They have no understanding of what we call the Old Testament. They are total pagans. The people of Lystra would not have had an assumption of monotheism. There is one God. Let's know Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's the beginning of the Shema, the most important law to the Jews. They didn't have that understanding. To them, there was polytheism. Many gods, including Zeus and Hermes. Um, that's what the people of Lystra believed in. So... Paul's strategy with this desperate sermon to deflect praise is actually a fascinating examination of the means by which we can reach people who have absolutely no knowledge, no depth of knowledge, no background knowledge for our belief system. If we're trying to reach those people who have no idea about the scripture, there's principles here that we can use. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about that much more in Acts 17, when Paul gives a very similar sermon to a similar crowd of total pagans who have no understanding of the Jewish belief system. Um, On Mars Hill. It's a pretty famous sermon. And we'll talk about that then. Um, It's a really captivating strategy, though. He appeals to nature as chief revelation of God, that if you look at creation, you should be able to see God. Whereas whenever they're preaching to Jewish people, they say the revelation is what? It's not nature, it's scripture, right? It's God's word, it's the prophets, it's the law. They reveal who God is. So we'll talk about that in a couple months. What I want us to focus on is the entire purpose behind this mini-sermon. The reason he jumps up on that stage and and tears his clothes and, and demands that they stop all of this. It's right there in it, the introduction. The reason he, he preaches this is right there in the introduction to his sermon, and it's right there in the name that I chose for this sermon. Um, verse, what is it? Uh, verse 15 says, We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. We too are only human like like you. Don't praise us. Your praise belongs with the living God, the creator, the father who sends you good things when you need them. That's where the praise belongs. The reason that Paul and Barnabas arrived looking like the road-weary second coming of the poor pilgrim versions of Zeus and Hermes, the reason they came in with their clothes torn and, and bruises all over themselves Um, is because they had just been beaten and exiled from Iconium, which was 20 miles away. And then they had marched that 20 miles of their own accord to the city of Lystra. So there's a reason they looked and smelled probably very terrible. It was no disguise as it was for, for Hermes and Zeus. Hermes and Zeus disguised themselves as travelers so they could judge the people they came to. Paul and Barnabas that was no disguise. That was the real deal. And they did it so they could not show judgment, but show love to the people that they come to. As we talked about last week, what they had were legitimate signs of obedience to Christ, marks and bruises all over their body. Paul and Barnabas, they knew suffering. They knew oppression. They knew poverty. They knew abuse. And they knew, as we talked about last week, that all of that pain was worth it because it worked. The ultimate goal was to bring the good news of Jesus the Savior to people who had never heard of him before in order that those lost people might experience the light of the living God as Paul himself had. Once he was blind, but now he sees. Paul and Barnabas didn't experience all those trials and tribulations to bring glory to themselves. That's ridiculous. What bit of glory is worth getting beaten and stoned almost to death at every city you go to? There's nothing you can get for yourself that's worth any of that. I I think. I wouldn't want to endure it just to have people like me and think I'm great. They didn't do all of that for themselves. That's not how it works. They experienced all of that abuse and hardship and suffering so that others might praise the creator of heaven and earth, the patient father who sends rains and crops and food and rejoicing. They didn't do it for themselves. That wouldn't make sense. They did it for God so others would be convinced of this good news that they brought the new disciples would soon get another glimpse into Paul's commitment to bringing glory to God no matter the cost, when the same people who had one minute wanted to worship him as the second coming of Hermes were the next minute stoning him until he appeared to be dead and then flinging him out of the city into a ditch while they all fled back to the city before the Roman authorities could see them carrying out this illegal execution. One minute they're shouting praise, ready to sacrifice animals in their honor. The next minute they're not sacrificing animals, they're sacrificing Paul himself. Barb mentioned last week, are we supposed to see Jesus in all this? Well, yeah, what looks more like Jesus than proclaiming someone as God one minute and then screaming for his blood the next? Absolutely, we see Paul reflecting Jesus and we're supposed to see ourselves willing to give up anything. The, the cost of discipleship is your very life if it comes to that. Yeah, we're supposed to see Jesus. That was a great question, Barb. The persecution is awful. We're supposed to read this as a tragedy. Certainly not a comedy. Definitely a tragedy. Lystra is like the Phrygian city just down the hill from Philemon and Bacchus. That city would be judged guilty for their unwillingness to accept the God who had arrived among them. And that's true of Lystra as well. When they dispose of Paul like human garbage, they're judging themselves unworthy of the grace of Jesus Christ. Not all of them, however. A small but but vibrant and healthy contingents stayed to care for Paul in his battered state before sending him off on his excruciating ride to Derby. These faithful few would once again be visited some months later by Paul and Barnabas and would show themselves to be heroes like Philemon and Bacchus. Why? Because they were mere humans who are deemed worthy for glory because they opened up their hearts and homes for the mighty God in their midst. And I'm not talking about Paul and Barnabas. They're not mighty gods. They're humans like you and I. But those who responded with faith to the message of Paul and Barnabas were welcoming the mighty God into their hearts and homes. Very similar to Philemon and Bacchus, who welcomed pretend gods into their homes and were rewarded. These, these these faithful few in Lystra do the same thing. And that's that, I think, is the message for us this morning. We should be inspired by Paul and Barnabas, not just at their faithfulness in the face of pain and oppression, which is very inspiring, When I hear that Paul was stoned until he looked like he was dead, popped up minutes later and and went on a a journey to, to do the same thing in the next city, that inspires me. But that's not the only source of inspiration here. We should also be inspired by their faithfulness in the face of praise and honor, which can be just as much a stumbling block and often more so than persecution, pain, and oppression. We too have the privilege, like the elderly couple, in Lystra's favorite story, we too have the privilege of welcoming gods into our lives. Not gods, God into our life. But if Jesus really is Lord, then that has a couple of consequences. Number one, we looked at this last week, we talked about this a lot lately. The first consequence of, of welcoming Jesus as Lord into our life is accepting suffering for his name's sake. And we sure see a lot of that in Paul, don't we? Every story of Paul, he's getting beaten or abused or thrown in jail or stoned to death, shipwrecks, all kinds of stuff. So we we see number one all the time, but what's really truly refreshing to me is to see number two, the second consequence, and that's the consequence of of being willing to deny ourselves of the glory that we never deserved at all in the first place. It's not just accepting suffering; it's rejecting glory that we don't deserve. Of course. I've never healed anyone who's been crippled from birth, at least not yet. So I've never had anyone want to sacrifice oxen in my honor. So this is not a situation I've ever found myself in. Maybe you have. That would be incredible. I've never found myself in this specific situation that Paul and Barnabas find themselves in, but I've found myself in many, many situations that are very similar, where the principle is the same. I've been guilty of siphoning some of the accumulated glory away from God and storing it up for myself. God you get enough glory. I want some recognition. I want some praise here. I've been guilty of being less like Paul tearing his clothes at the first hint of blasphemy and more like Herod Agrippa quietly soaking in other people's kind words and thinking, "You know what? I am that great. I I am pretty good." I've been guilty of misrepresenting myself as the hero, the savior, the lord of my own little kingdom. That it's me who goes and helps these people, who saves these people who brings peace to these people. It's me who's doing this. Me, 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 me. It's not me. It never is me. I'm just a willing vessel occasionally. I am not Lord of my own little kingdom. I'm not and you're not. We too, as Paul says, are only human. We too are only human. We have been visited by divinity. We have divinity living inside of us. We bear the good news of that divinity. We devote our whole lives to representing that divinity well so there's a lot of divinity in and around us but we ourselves are not divine there is nothing special about me as paul says later in the letter that he wrote to these very same baby christians in galatia this is what he says this is galatians 110 am i now trying to win the approval of human beings or of god am i trying to please people If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he lives this out. He demonstrates this here in Lystra. If he was doing this all to get people to like him, what a pathetic system he's got going on for himself. I would argue it's not worth it, Paul. Try something else. Try a new strategy to get people to like you, rather than having stones thrown at your face. Try something new. But he doesn't do it to win human approval. He does all of that to win God's approval so that other people would see what following God is like and want that for themselves. They would know the peace and the hope and the joy that comes even as stones are being thrown at your face. That's why he does it. Not to please people, not to please himself, but to please God who he serves. And so I ask the question, and this is not rhetorical. I'm genuinely asking, and I'm asking myself as well, why are we here this morning? What are we doing here? Why have we chosen to follow him? Are we here to feel good and holy? Are we here to assuage our guilty conscience or to show off to someone? I don't know who, but to show off to someone just how decent we are. Are we here for the killer drumming and excellent sermons? Oh, wait, I'm getting a little Herod Agrippa there again for a second. Pardon me. Or are we here to encounter the creator of heaven and earth, to catch a glimpse of him and tremble with fear and rejoicing like Philemon and Bacchus did? Are we here as brothers and sisters, equal in the eyes of our Father, looking to serve one another and the community that we find ourselves in? Are we here to share and grow and love and learn? Are we here to become less so that we can be, he can become more? I'll say that again because I screwed up the main point. Are we here to become less so that he can become more? Are we here to remind ourselves to seek his kingdom rather than our own? I know it feels sometimes like we are all just our own little gods. I know it's tempting to pat ourselves on the back for earning our own wages and winning our own battles and becoming ever more self-sufficient and self-satisfied, sucking away at his glory to grow our own little egos. I know that's very tempting, and I fall into those same temptations too. But we too are merely human. We too, like Philemon and Bacchus in their little cottage, have very little to offer the god in our midst. What do they have? Some figs and a goose. What do I bring to the table in the kingdom? Ultimately, not a whole lot, but he uses me anyway. He uses you anyway. We have little to offer, but we too are accepted, and our offerings are accepted, thankfully, gladly, by our Father. We too will know the suffering that comes with following Jesus faithfully, as Paul and Barnabas did. We too will get confused and worship the wrong things like the people of Leicester are guilty of. But here's the thing about being human. We too can dwell in the presence of God, like the elderly couple in the story. We too can persevere in the love of both God and neighbor, like the battered apostles. We too can leap and rejoice at a God who responds to faith, like the crippled beggar. We too are only human, for better or for worse. But stories like Acts 14 remind us that the more we acknowledge how brokenly human we are, the more he can demonstrate how powerfully and lovingly divine he truly is. The more we acknowledge how human and how small and broken we are, the more big and powerful and filled with love and grace he becomes. Not that he changes, our perception of him changes. We just need to be willing to step out of the way and let him receive the glory he deserves. That's our role. Do good, but then step out of the way, deflect praise onto him. He deserves it. It's the whole purpose of this whole thing. Last week, the theme was whatever works. Well, it only works if he's getting the glory. That's what it, that's what I meant by whatever works. Not whatever works so that people like us, as Paul would say in Galatians 1, that's nothing. Who cares? Whatever works in bringing him glory and bringing him praise. And then, if we are able to do that, if we're able to get out of the way, and and have him receive all the glory, then maybe we'll get a happy ending and flee to the top of a mountain with our pet goose before turning into a tree for all eternity. But maybe I'm getting my Bible mixed up with my Greek legends, I don't know. I'm only human after all, only human. Father God, thank you that you call us, even though we are broken humans, to serve you. I pray that we would serve you well, wholeheartedly, and that as we serve you, you would get the praise, you would get the glory and the worship. Help us to deflect all of that off of us and onto you. Help us to tear our clothes at blasphemy. Help us to powerfully proclaim you as Paul and Barnabas did. Help us to get up when we are beaten down as Paul and Barnabas did, all so that you would be glorified. We are only human, but you are very, very powerful and very loving. And You are our God, and we praise you today and every day. Amen. wasn't an apostle was a bad guy